Hello, my name is Stanley Bill. You're listening to Notes from Poland. This week, I'm talking to feminist activist and scholar Agnieszka Graf about the mass protests against the recent abortion ruling in Poland. We'll discuss the motivations and style of the protests, the background to the ruling, and what might happen next. Notesfrompoland.com is the leading English-language source of news, insight, and analysis on Poland. In this podcast, I look at the country from all angles politics, history, culture, and society. You can get more news and the deeper stories about Poland at notesfrompoland.com. My guest this week is feminist activist and scholar Agnieszka Graf. She is a professor at the American Studies Center at Warsaw University. Uh, Welcome to the Notes from Poland podcast, Agnieszka. Hello, thank you for having me. On October 22nd, Poland's Constitutional Tribunal made a ruling that will effectively end legal abortion in Poland. The court ruled that abortion in cases where the fetus is irreversibly damaged is unconstitutional. Such cases represent the vast majority of legal abortions in Poland, which already had a very restrictive abortion law under the so-called Compromise Legislation of 1993. According to the court, abortion will now only be legal in cases involving rape, incest or danger to the life or health of the mother. Now, this court is far from independent. The Constitutional Tribunal has effectively been captured by the ruling party Peace, stacked with loyalists and reportedly steered by Peace leader Jarosław Kaczynski through his close relationship with the court's president. So most people have interpreted this ruling very much as Peace's and Kaczynski's decision, uh, despite their attempt to avoid political responsibility precisely by sending it to the court. Now, oddly, the government has not yet published the ruling, so it hasn't come into effect. And we may return to this question later. But multiple opinion polls show that over 70% of polls are opposed to the court's decision. In response, hundreds of thousands of people, many of them women, have come out onto the streets of hundreds of Polish cities and towns, large and small, to protest this decision in scenes of mass civil disobedience during the pandemic, which have been beamed across the world. Agnieszka, what is going on in Poland right now? What is your general assessment of the unfolding events? Um, Does this moment represent a radicalization of existing conflicts or the eruption of something entirely new? Well, the word that uh, has made the rounds and is making people frown is revolution. Everybody's using it. And for the first few days, I thought they were joking that it was a metaphor. Feminists tend to use the word revolution rather generously. Now I think it really was meant to be a revolution. In other words, um, Marta Lempart and uh, other members of the steering committee of the women's strike uh, really wanted these protests to um, lead to the stepping down of the government. Um, So a revolution in the political sense, but I think it's also a cultural revolution, a generational revolution. You mentioned that uh, the majority of protesters are women. That may be so, but it's not the most important fact about these protests. The most important fact is that this is Generation Z. These are kids. The average age in the streets is, you know, 20, 22. And uh, and it has 
different feel from anything we've had before, even a different feel from the black protests, the so-called black protests, the women's strikes of 2016, which had the same group of leaders, but a different cohort of participants. Now, you've attended some of the marches. Um, What's the atmosphere been like? And what do you think are the main motivations and aims of the protesters on the ground? You talk about revolution as one of the motivating, as the key motivation of some of the organizers. Is that the feel uh, in these marches? The kids that are out in the streets, um, they want to be together. And being together is something they've been deprived of because of the pandemic, the several months of lockdown, and now both schools and universities having gone online. Uh, They want to protest against something they find absurd and scandalous and barbaric, obviously. They want to express their anger. And the feel is that they're unstoppable. Um, I actually not only attended most of the marches, uh, but I also organized uh, one of the blockades. And... The experience was really... This is the um, blockades of traffic uh, on the street. Yes, the blockade of uh, Ronda Washington in Warsaw last Monday. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that we expected uh, maybe 50, 60 people to show up and, you know, walk across the street repeatedly. What happened was that several thousand people showed up and then they refused to leave. We wanted to stop the uh, the blockade after an hour. And after an hour, we got a big round of applause And then the blockade continued. I thought they were going to clap and go home, but that Mm -hmm. didn't happen. And I think that's more or less what's going on. Organizers don't, you know, they they trigger some of the events, they coordinate some of the events, but they cannot tell when they're going to stop or, you know, they don't dictate the, uh, the meaning of the protests. So it's a revolution also in that sense that it has its own momentum, its own internal logic, and everyone is... It's kind of taken by surprise by by how it develops. It seems, by the way, to be dying down now. Um, my students tell me that the energy has gone down, that they feel mm, confused and despaired rather than elated and excited as they did last week. So the, the, the dynamic is really quite intensely changing. It's interesting that you mentioned the idea of being together and that the context of the pandemic seems very important here. And I wonder if you would draw any parallels with the Black Lives Matter protests, which took place, especially in the United States, but also in yeah, the UK I think in summer. The same. I think it's the same thing, basically. It's a situation in which something outrageous, something that is uh, that is against the moral sensibility of the young generation, perhaps more deeply than the older people involved in America. It's a, it's a, it's police violence, uh, which is obviously racist. And in Poland, it's a um, disrespect for women's rights, combined with this kind of sanctimonious religious discourse that this generation abhors. But at the same time, this desire to do something to be to, to somehow, you know, let the energy out. These are kids who have really been bottled up at home for way too long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems it seems very significant that it's younger people who in many ways, certainly economically and in terms of their lives, their, their life opportunities have been hit most cruelly by the pandemic. And so it does appear that there's this this need to sort of to, to express anger at that. And then when, as you say, something outrageous happens in their eyes, this is bringing out people in numbers that, as you suggested, were perhaps not expected by anybody, not by the government. 
The economic aspect is clearly important, but I wouldn't underestimate the psychological aspect. The fact yep. that, you know, when you're in your 20s, you want to see your friends. And when you're cut off from your friends, you go crazy. So I've been seeing uh, before this wave of protests, before the tribunal's verdict, uh, big groups of young kids breaking the rules of lockdown. I live next to the, the river and, uh, you know, you had... Uh, huge groups of kids uh, doing what you're not supposed to be doing, sitting very close to each other, singing, burning fires, and so on. And there was a kind of, we want to resist the powers that be feeling about these parties. So the, the demonstrations are a lot like the parties, except they're parties with a purpose. Uh, so anthropologists have been talking about a kind of pandemic carnival going on. This is, by the way, something that historically happens with every pandemic. People risk their lives and risk getting infected because they cannot stand the the intensity of the situation. So does this feel then that it's something very different from previous waves of women's rights campaigning that you've seen or that you've been involved in since the transition of 1989, in fact? Is this very unique? It's unique, but it's also a continuation of the black protests of 2016. The, the continuity is both uh, structural, the women's strike, it's the same group, Marta Lampart is the same leader who emerged in 2016. Mm, but there are many differences. Uh, I'm told that actually many of the women who are now organizing on the local level went to these protests in 2016, that they're kind of children of that revolution. Uh, but, th but there are big differences. It's much more radical. It's much more openly anti-church. I think that's the biggest difference. And that's where the real revolution is happening in attitudes towards the church and responses to the claim expressed by Kaczynski in his address to the nation that the church is the only source of moral standards in Poland. These kids find this claim absurd. And also in the language, the shockingly common and often very funny use of, uh, you know, of, of profanities. This, this, is a, this is a continuing fest of uh, language games played with, with several swear words in Polish. It's untranslatable and really great fun if you have some training in linguistics. This has been a very striking characteristic and this uh, main motto of the march, Wypierdalacz, uh, so literally something like fuck off or get the fuck out, that's been used and other uh, expressions directed at peace. Um, what's your assessment uh, of the strategic choice of this language and what its effects have been? Because, of course, there, there have been some moderates in particular who've criticized the language and style of the protests, suggesting that, that this might exclude potential participants and allies, and thus narrowing their appeal, which the polls show is, of course, potentially very, very wide. And they also express concern about vandalism of churches and disruption of religious service that have taken place. Now, others argue that a confrontational style is necessary to channel the current anger and perhaps to break through the existing barriers of power. Uh, what's your view on this? Well, my view has evolved. When the word Vipirtalac first came up, and this was way before this wave of protests, as the main slogan of a uh, minor demonstration like three or four months ago, I thought it was that that they were overplaying their hand, that this was not going to catch on. And it didn't at that time. And then the word came back again after the tribunals, um, or the pseudo-tribunals, as we refer to it, verdict, and it caught on like wildfire. But let me just say that it's not just confrontational, it's also really funny. Let me give you one example. Many of the banners used in the protests consists of eight asterisks. Uh, 
uh, or eight uh, little puffy things made yeah. of wool, right? And everybody knows what that means. The phrase, I don't know if I should be swearing on your podcast. Well, I've already um, sworn. And uh, the thing is, I'm, I don't think we can really discuss this very interesting <laughs> issue without using the language. So uh, I'll, I'll do it if you prefer, if you would prefer not Please to. But do. I'd be, so, so yebach peace, which uh, yeah. literally, again, and I apologize uh, to listeners, uh, fuck peace, uh, essentially. And as you say, yebach, of course, is a five syllable word. So five asterisks and then peace, the three asterisks. Uh, so this has been. And there present. is a song which is now a you know the, the hit of the protests and a hit of Polish internet by that title by a singer who is also known for using vulgar language and most of his songs are not quite as as funny as this one, uh, where the whole nation is encouraged to sing these two words, and then you have kids at the protests dancing to this song, and. Well, you know, it, maybe it depends on your sense of humor. I understand Kaczynski is not amused. He says that these are hordes of wild, um, unkempt barbarians who are unPolish and, you know, have a broken continuity with the Polish cultural code. But actually, you know, Poland has a long tradition of use of, of making absurd conversations that consist solely of swear words. And I think that the protests actually feed into this tradition and Perhaps not coincidentally, a lot of the banners have been quoting Polish romantic poetry, making references to Polish novels, including Prusas Lalka, mm -hmm. and poetry taught to kids at school. And so, so there is this kind of um, language games are just a big part of it. Let me give you one example that I think English speakers will, will appreciate. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite banners says, Egalité. Fraternité Vipirdalité. Yes, I saw this. Yes. <laughs> that is pretty good, you'll admit. And there are hundreds of those. There are whole you know, competitions for the funniest banner um, on YouTube uh, and on you know on Facebook. So so people are obviously having fun with the swear words. They're not just an expression of anger. They're also an expression of this kind of liberating moment where, you know, you go out in yeah. the streets and you just swear. Another of my favorites was, um, you know, a very young, innocent looking girl, like a good school girl with a big sign saying, my mother told me I could swear today. Okay, so so you, so your sense is that, that the atmosphere has more been one of play uh, and yes. language games rather than outright aggression. Um, but it's does it... anger, but not yep. aggression. And okay. in fact, the crowds have been remarkably um, moderate in their responses to outright attacks and provocations on the part of the uh, uh, of the neo Nazis and also uh, the secret services. So, so, so we there, should there say have that been the a number of yep. provocations, and obviously, that is the spin on these protests that the government wants to take. That the, the these are get, that the protests are getting out of hand. They're dangerous. Children are being manipulated. That's what Kaczynski said. And so there, to me, this is a rhetoric that prepares the ground for a military or at least a violent police uh, reaction to the protests. The protesters are really not giving them an excuse for this sort of thing. What, what about, for example, the vandalism of churches or the interruption of services? Um, what vandalism the, of churches? There well, has the, on the graffiti it, on the churches. Yeah, that's right. But nobody destroyed anything inside a church. Yeah. And the total count of these incidents where women would enter the mm -hmm. chur churches were something like thirty-two. 
yeah. with, you know, given 11,000 parishes. It's, I, I'm, I may be confusing the numbers a little bit, which is not to say that I would condemn these attacks. I've actually participated in a protest in front of the church myself. I've mm-hmm. hang up uh, coat hangers on churches. The idea basically behind this wave of protests is that the church should stop um, pretending that it's not part of the social uh, landscape. The and and the political, the political yeah, landscape the above church all, right? The church is a political and social yeah. player like any other, and it, mm-hmm. it's not a holy cow. Yeah. Um, and so people expressing their anger at the church, at the clergy, and especially at official buildings like the Curia, I think that's completely natural, and, it's, and, and it, this is actually what makes this movement revolutionary, that the church has... That the position of the church has really changed. We yep. have yet to see if the if the position of the government has changed, but the church certainly things will never go back to normal after this one. So, the, the, in this sense, there's a there's a barrier of power that that has been broken. Leaving to one side the question of putting graffiti on churches and whether that's legitimate, does it worry you, as some moderates have expressed, the idea that this could in effect, exclude potential allies and participants, and that there are people out there, actually a a broad sort of groundswell of popular support, partly for the protests, but certainly against the court's ruling, and that using these styles of protest could potentially limit the appeal of the protests um, in a way that might be unnecessary. Does that concern you, or do you think that the gains are bigger by mobilizing people? I've heard this argument again and again for the last 25 years. And frankly, it was much more convincing when there were a hundred of us in the streets. And we were told that if we were a little bit more moderate, maybe more people would come to our demonstration than when there's a hundred thousand. This is a mass protest movement. And I think its mass appeal has to do with its willingness to confront the real issue. And the real issue is the fact that Poland has become a church state. And that's what these kids are challenging. So there is a, you know, the the combination of a populist dictatorship and uh, a Catholic church, which is basically an ally of radical nationalism, uh, as the, you know, this political combination setting the ground for how people should live their lives. It's infuriating. And a movement that expresses fury against this situation has to be radical. But, the, you know, but there, but there are, of course, moments which are debatable. One of them was when uh, Marta Lempart attacked with the word Wypierdalać, Hołownia, the presidential candidate who was supported yes. by many young people. And who is uh, a moderate is, Catholic in the way he styles himself. Yes. And of course, it's, there is a big debate going on in feminist circles, whether he's a moderate or a fundamentalist. He doesn't seem to be pro-choice, as many moderate Catholics in Britain or the United States would be. He's, mm-hmm. he's way to the right of anything that you would, you would call certainly. moderate. Uh, it, outside in, in of Poland, West. certainly. Yeah. But many of of my students, actually, I, 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 I talked with students, I, I have a class on social movements. So when this erupted, you know, obviously, we were going to talk, you about had a it. case study, we had a case study. And you know, a lot of them had banners, you know, right there behind their backs on zoom. Um, so they, they, they complained about this, they, they well were disappointed, they thought that the that antagonizing Hovnia and Hovnia's voters was not a good idea. And also that the aggression of this post was just 
too much. And uh, believe it or not, Marta Lempart backed out. She said, we're going to keep doing things, which is her yeah. favorite phrase. So yeah. she's, I don't think she's invested in making these, uh, you know, these strong uh, statements against mm -hmm. potential political mm -hmm. allies. She really is a very pragmatic leader trying to get people to do things. It's a very interesting question, this this idea of, well, did, is it that rhetoric that is precisely has been the cause of the size uh, and success of the of the protests rather than something that in any way limits them? There were some particularly striking scenes of a group of, of young women surrounding a priest who was trying to talk them down and tell them that they shouldn't be there and they shouldn't be protesting. And they were telling him in no uncertain terms, using some of the, the colorful language that we've seen in the protests, that they were not going to listen to him. And this happened in a smaller town. And I wonder if you could say something about the, the difference between the dynamic in the big cities and the fact that these protests have also taken place in lots of smaller places across the country, including in the Peace Heartland. Yes, I when I saw the uh, the little recording from Szczecinek, which is what you were referring to with the girls screaming at the priest, um, my heart stopped. I just couldn't imagine myself at that age, and I was a big city girl, doing anything close to that. The the kind of def deference with which you react to the you know to to the a priest passing you by in the street it was just a given for my generation, and I think it still is in the heartland, so to speak. So a taboo has been broken. The the church is no longer a kind of sacred ground and untouchable. And play, really unlikely places have witnessed demonstrations. The last I heard, Czarna Białostocka, which is a small city left over from Communist Times Arms Production Company. So really kind of a sad place with people living in these strange blocks in the middle of this uh, of the forest and huge unemployment rates and a big football team from uh, their supporters from Białystok very active on the walls of that uh, uh, of buildings and they had a protest so you know something has mm -hmm. broken something and you know I, I don't think these are feminist protests necessarily I think there is a sense of mm -hmm. traditional Polish people having lost their patience with the priests what has come to the fore is traditional Polish anti-clericalism and not just, as, as I think peace likes to imagine, um, the influ uh, Western influence. This is a peculiarly Polish anti-church feeling. Um, I've heard some, uh, you know, some young men uh, giving interviews in the streets to journalists about why they have joined the protests. These were not young leftist men who are joining their feminist girlfriends. These were traditional men who are who are vowing to protect their girlfriends and wives from uh, the priests who have just gone wild. It's that sort of scenario. We have to protect our women against these guys. That's very interesting. And I think you're right. I mean, there is this quite strong current among religious people in Poland of dissatisfaction with the church and particularly with the clergy. And and obviously this feeling has risen as the church pedophile scandals have been revealed in, in recent years. Definitely. That feeling is felt, especially when uh, there's talk about uh, wealth of the church and the greed of the church, and bishops are occasionally targeted as exceptionally greedy. Um, it did come to the fore in the context of the Sakielski brothers' uh, documentary films about pedophilia, uh, but now it is completely open. It is, you know, these men are saying absurd things and we have to defend our women against them. So it's not exactly a feminist mm. movement. It's a it's a national movement against an institution which it has been assumed expresses Polish culture, 
But as it now seems, it doesn't. Polish culture is elsewhere. But perhaps if we if we just step back a little bit to what provoked these questions, uh, and which is the, the decision of the court, which, as I mentioned before, many people assume the timing of the decision, at least, was dictated by Jarosław Kaczynski, who has this close relationship with the head of the court. Uh, he's been postponing this issue repeatedly because he knows that changing the current abortion or the previous abortion law in Poland is not something that most Poles want to do. So why did he decide to bring this issue to a head right now? Well, there are two schools, as usually in Polish public debates. One is the provocation Only two. school and one is the miscalculation school. I'm of the miscalculation mm-hmm. school, but I've mm-hmm. just been, I've just um, accepted invitation to a Batory Foundation debate, which actually has provocation in its title. So I suspect that a lot of smart people in Poland assume that Kaczyński knew what he was doing, that he timed this decision, uh, you know, with a certain amount of um, deliberation. And I guess the argument would be that uh, he is trying to take attention off of the terrible mismanagement of the pandemic and that he wants to blame the spread of the pandemic on protesters. That those Mm -hmm. are my guesses of what the provocation school might be thinking. I don't think of Kaczynski as a great leader with this kind of Machiavellian, um, you know, idea of what to do and knowledge of what of, of how people would react three steps ahead. A lot of people think of him as a political genius. I don't think so. I think he's actually a hostage to a political pact with the ultra-conservatives. Um, Kaya Godek is just one of a whole scene of ultra-conservative forces in Poland. She's, of course, represent... one of the, the main campaigners uh, for yes. the tightening of the abortion law. Yes, yes, but she represents an organization, and this, rep- and this organization is in a tight-knit network with other organizations, of which the most important one is Ordo Juris. And Ordo Juris, which was behind the uh, effort to ban abortion four years ago, and which has also been behind uh, pushing for Poland leaving the Istanbul Con- Convention against violence against women. Um, so a number and, and of also responsible conservative... Also responsible for the for the so-called uh, anti-LGBT ideology zones in motivating local councils uh, to not to, entirely. To pass those. They, yeah, yeah, they motivate them, but they're not exactly behind them. It's a complicated scenario. But yes, yeah. it's oh, it's that it's the full package deal with ultra-conservative ideas concerning gender issues, and of course, Ordo Juris is not a spontaneous product of Polish conservatism, it's part of a much wider international network of what uh, scholars are increasingly calling the anti-gender movement. Uh, so the, so there, is a, there is a transnational power or force in play here, which is making, uh, which, which made uh, it easier for Kaczyński to win the elections and to which Kaczyński has a debt. So my suspicion is that he was, his hand was forced, that he had to do it, that it was basically payback time. They helped him win the elections, they helped Duda win the elections, and this is what they want. They want women's um, rights in return. Uh, of course, the Polish episcopate is, is squarely on the side of the, 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 the ultra-fundamentalists. It didn't used to be completely on their side um, beforehand. 
because these debates they they come uh, repeatedly this is a circular kind of situation and the church has taken various positions this time it's squarely behind Kaya Goldek and consort and consortus so i think kaczynski kaczynski's uh, hand was forced by those people but also he i suspect his calculation was that um, he is being uh, pushed into a right wing corner further right than he would like to be on these gender issues by Jobro, right, and his electorate. Absolutely. There's a lot of talk in Poland about Jobro and Confederacja uh, creating a kind of um, ultra uh, radical right wing bloc and taking power away from Kaczynski, who is who is whose power is decreasing, right? He's losing control of his allies. He's losing control of even people in his own party. So basically, as he had done before in different situations, he makes decisions which make it seem like there is nothing to the right of him so as to yep. prevent the the ultra right wingers uh, from gaining power so i think that this was a political calculation and and you know i cannot tell which was more important and it the went fundamentalists wrong. or jabro but but it went too far and as before as he as in 2016 i think uh, he didn't quite predict the force of uh, reaction of the streets. I think that there was a, and well, actually I know because I read the Ordo Juris newsletter regularly, uh, the right has been convinced for quite some time that the women's strike is dead, that the women's strike, you know, was, was a kind of one-time deal. That the, that, that the know, 2016 yeah. moment would not be repeated. Exactly. That yep. there is no yep. that the movement yep. has not become institutionalized and therefore it will not be effective. And they miscalculated because this is a movement that mobilizes within a few hours by means of social media. I fully agree with you. I think I'm in the miscalculation camp here as well. And I think it's important to note that the court originally said a decision was coming on September 17, when the pandemic was not yet in the state that it's in now. The dramatic rise in cases hadn't yet happened. And I would also agree with you that the context of the conflict with the Justice Minister Jobro and his minor coalition partner is absolutely crucial here. So the fact that this this decision was made in September when this battle was going on between the coalition partners and the coalition nearly fell apart is really important. And it shows, as you say, in a way, Kaczynski being pushed to the right by Jobro's attempts to to create a, a more separate identity for his party as the hard right option. And in response, Peace has to show we have our hard right fundamentals as well. And that's what's happened here. So to me, it really shows that, as you said, Kaczynski's power is weakening, and Jobro really won that September confrontation between the two of them. But what happens now? So what, if any, is the way out of this? Because the court ruling itself is unappealable. It hasn't been published yet by the government, which is telling. But President Duda has also proposed what he calls a compromise legislative solution, which would really be a compromise on a compromise, so only a partial back down and, and will not be accepted by protesters. The protest leaders are pushing for abortion on demand, uh, which won't find support in the current parliament and arguably not among a majority of Polish voters either. So what might happen next? What is a plausible path out of this crisis as far as you can see? 
Well, first of all, let me take exception. There is a popular majority support for legal abortion in Poland. Maybe not abortion on demand, but certainly the 1996 solution where a woman in a dire situation would have the right to abortion. I think it's the the latest polls that I saw were like 61 or 62%. Yeah, but not on demand. Not not on demand, but it depends on how you ask. If you ask people about abortion on demand, mm-hmm. narzeczenie or narzondanie, the, the, and by the way, the use of these words makes for a, quite a big difference. I think people don't like the word życzenie. They, they, they're more, more okay yeah. with narzondanie. So it really depends on Can how you ask the question. Can we try and pick apart if what the difference them in if English? If women should decide between those, życzenie means, means that you are asking for something and żądanie that you're demanding it. So yeah. it seems that, you know, Polish ideas of what a woman should do in, involve asking but not demanding. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, those are those are minor differences. The big difference is between asking people if, uh, you know, if, if, if they think it's okay to kill unborn babies and asking people if it's okay uh, for a woman to make a decision about her unwanted pregnancy. It's actually the same question, but the answers are very different. It's crucial. So... What's going to happen? I would love to know. I would love to be, you know, transported in a time capsule and two weeks from now and and find out. The they have not published the verdict, although the, they were legally obliged to do so, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday. So they've already broken the law, which to me shows that they may be willing to twist the law further. Right. The ideas that have been flying around, and I have no idea which ones are feasible, is that the one scenario is that they will sign it and then that it will be suggested more or less officially, or at least it will be done by uh, doctors to broaden the health exception to include mental health and that this would be somehow made known to the public. So that would be the, the new compromise, not the compromise that makes it, that Duda is proposing, uh, making it a, a differentiation between Down syndrome babies and fetuses that are so disfigured as to be basically doomed to dying right after birth or even yeah. before, right? But rather redefining what a danger to a woman's health might be. So I've, I've heard that speculations on that count. My feeling is that a more likely scenario is that the protests will slowly die down because people are tired and because increasingly, and we're already seeing signs of this, there will be, um, maybe not violently, but re- but there will be repressions. There, there are some cases of young women being arrested, and it usually doesn't happen in, in Warsaw, but in smaller towns. People being threatened with fines. The Minister of Education has threatened teachers who are participating. So they're kind of, they're, you know, they're choosing their targets. But the idea is that they will uh, intimidate people into, you know, stopping the protests. So that's that, that's a sad scenario, but I think it's quite likely. But it's, Can I, I just add that, there that... Yeah. Uh, it's important to note that the deputy justice minister said specifically that prosecutors around the country had been instructed to prosecute or to try to bring charges against organizers of, of the marches and charges that carry prison sentences of up to eight years in some cases for posing a threat to health and life. So that's very much an attempt to intimidate organizers. And of course, uh, the pandemic uh, can be used in various ways here, right, to antagonize 
society against the organizers to make mm-hmm. them seem like they're risking people's lives um, and uh, and you know and also to introduce stricter measures like lockdown. If lockdown is introduced and there is gossip going on almost every day that they will introduce total lockdown, then going out in the streets will be a crime and not just a, a you know a misdemeanor. So that that's kind of the sad scenario. But within that sad scenario, I would say that things will never go back to normal. Peace has lost a lot of supporters and the church has completely lost its moral standing in Poland during the last few weeks. So I think I would want to repeat that cliche that you aired before. It's the beginning of the end, inevitably, for peace. So that's really the last question I'd like to ask is if you can get your crystal ball out again. The beginning of the end for peace has been announced on several occasions before. But is is this different? What do you think will be the long-term political consequences of this moment? Will we look back at it as a watershed moment in Polish political and, and cultural life? I think so. I think this is a watershed moment, mostly because it is a massive entry of a new generation onto the political scene. And it's easy to dismiss their anger as something that is not really political, but just wild and emotional. But there is actually a a very clear political message in this movement. Uh, And it has a kind of historical um, dimension. They are rejecting not just the abortion compromise, they are rejecting the bigger compromise on which the last 25 years of Polish history have been based. The setup within which the Catholic Church uh, and the political elites decide together to marginalize women's rights, to postpone indefinitely gay marriage and any other changes in the so-called, you know, realm of sexual democracy, because the church and the political elites together organize Polish political life and Polish identity. I think this generation is just not willing to accept that deal. And they reject it in the only language that they have right now, which is the language of, of despair and fury. But I think the word wypierdalać is going to be followed by some much more precise suggestions on how to organize our public sphere. And actually, the women's strike is working on in 13 subcommittees on a, on a program, a political program. So I think this is going to, be, to lead to a rearrangement of the Polish political scene eventually. We'll be watching these developments with great interest. Agnieszka Graf, thank you very much for joining me on the Notes from Poland podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me.